Your starting point is actually not the product, your starting point is customers. That's Michael Bacco, the CEO of Startmate, and this is Wild Hearts. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Wild Hearts, a podcast dedicated to sharing the real stories of founders, the passionate few taking giant leaps forward. We're here to uncover the lessons from the founders looking to change the world and the investors who back them. This podcast is brought to you by the team of Blackbird, and I'm your host, Mason Yates. Startmate is the epicenter for startup ambition across Australia and New Zealand. At Startmate's core, they're a community of the most ambitious founders, operators, and investors built on seamless, deserved trust. In this episode, Michael Bacco talks about the three elements of the Startmates community. Number one, the accelerator. It helps founders scale their businesses from the first dollar to hundreds of millions. He talks about the lessons he's learned from the thousands of founders he's helped. The fellowship, number two, is a program that empowers dreamers to take a leap of faith out of corporate life into a startup. Michael identifies what the best operators do and how they behave. And number three, Startmates Investors. They're launching the first believers to grow future investors to back unloved founders. We'll cover what the best investors do to help founders and how Startmate has grown in the last 10 years. We also wanted to capture an insider's look into Startmate. So we'll hear from two of Startmate's alumni. Number one, Lane from Chatter Eyes intimately shares what it's like to cop the hard truths during Startmate. She's created a pressure-free, engaging, accelerated learning experience that gives Chinese students the skills to use English as a communication tool. Number two, we'll hear about the biggest challenge and advice for hardware startups for those going through Startmate. The co-founder and COO of BioScout, Saren is building tech to capture, detect, and identify airborne diseases on farms. And finally, if you're a founder with a wild idea right at the beginning, make sure you apply to Startmate. There are so many actionable takeaways from this episode and I can't wait for you to listen. Well, first of all, thank you so much for joining me, Mr. Batko. Thanks for having me. Let's kick it off by thinking about your role as the CEO of Startmate. You came into the role about a year ago. How have you found it? What have been some of the key learnings and how do you think about the role that a CEO plays? So when I um, got into this year, I just had no idea what it actually means to be a CEO. And so I was definitely straight into the deep end, uh, no idea what I'm actually doing. And I started <laughs> as I was starting with everything with just asking a bunch of people like, what, what does it actually mean? And went completely from first principles and actually a great framework, which Nick Crocker sent me, partner at Blackbird, was kind of a five step or point summary, essentially, of what a CEO does, which is really good. Yeah, so I actually don't think it has a name or anything, but essentially it starts with, we shall call them the Batman Tillers. <laughs> nickname for anyone listening. <laughs> internal nickname Uh, (laughs) um, but yeah the first one is set a vision and a strategy for the company and for everybody and once you have that vision and strategy well the second most important thing is actually get the money to execute on that strategy and once you have that money it's about hiring the team to execute on the strategy and once you have the team holding the team accountable which is point number four and, and then the lastly, you need to evangelize that vision and that strategy, both internally, which is really important with your own team and internally within the company, but also then externally to anybody else listening to your customers and to the rest of the ecosystem. So it's kind of like the five points. I love it. And we're going to flesh out a lot of that as we make our way 
through this episode, part of that vision started with the accelerator. We're now 10 years in, which is just monumental. Let's talk about the accelerator and, and how you kind of think through how it's progressed over the last 10 years and where it's at now. Yeah, so start with, as you said, like 10 years is a long time. And back in 2010, StartMate was essentially 15 people who are all founders and ex-founders. Um, started by Nikish Chivak, um, managing partner at Blackbird, but also Mike and Scott, the co-founders of Atlassian. And they all put in $10,000 of their own money and said, let's actually support founders. And there was the whole idea of founders helping founders. Let's invest into five businesses and help them along the journey. The reason why I'm sharing this story is because that's what StartMate started at and um, that's the core of StartMate of uh, founders helping founders. But now 10 years later, StartMate has become much more than just an accelerator and it's still very much focused on founders, but it's much more than um, just an accelerator. That's why um, our new kind of slogan or one-liner is actually the StartMate is the epicenter of startup ambition in Australia and New Zealand. And the reason for that is because um, what StartNet is now is, um, or the way I look at it is three core pillars of StartNet. And not the Batman pillars, but the three core pillars <laughs> of StartNet, which are founders, operators, and investors. And if you bring all the three together, you have a successful ecosystem, but also our StartNet alumni are doing really well. Mm. So the first pillar then is founders, where um, StartNet has done exceptionally well over the last 10 years. We've invested in 130 companies, which are now worth over a billion dollars. We've got four to five companies worth over $100 million. And the second part then is once you have those companies and they have hundreds of people, the biggest problem which any of those companies have is hiring awesome people. So this is kind of the second pillar of the operators, where we've um, now launched a fellowship where and we have awesome people who want to take that plunge into startups and jump into startups with confidence. And this is kind of the, the part which we provide. And then the third pillar is on the investment side um, where we have just launched the first Believers program, which is essentially about bringing more diversity into the investment pool. And um, so especially pillar two and three operators and investors is still fairly new. The operator pillar about two years old and the first Believers pillar roughly three days old. <laughs> So let's talk about the accelerator to begin with, and then we'll make our way into the other two. For the accelerator, you mentioned that it is the epicenter for startups. There are a bunch of other accelerators. What's different about StartMate? Yeah, so if you think about accelerators, and um, there's essentially three core models. And I always look at the world as it's all based on the incentives you give somebody. If you incentivize somebody to do X, they will do X. And startup accelerators are essentially, and that essentially always comes with where do you get your money from? And accelerators usually get the money from um, governments, universities, or corporates. And as you think about all three of them, they have their own incentives and therefore their success is defined differently. Corporates, um, they want to train their executives, which does not necessarily align with what the founders want. Universities want to help their alumni, which again, doesn't, doesn't actually mean commercial success. And the third pillar, which is um, corporate, uh, corporates um, and governments. Governments is the problem with grants, where you get a grant for like two or three years, and then you actually don't have a sustainable revenue stream after it. So the reason why I'm mentioning that is because StartNet is none of those three. We are completely mentor backed. So it's a mental seed fund, essentially. 
where every single one of our mentors is also a founder and an ex-founder, but also every single one of our mentors, and this is really important, is an investor and has skin in the game. So each one of them invests $10,000 of their own personal money um, into the fund, which then invests into all of the startups in the accelerator. And the reason why that's important is because now you have this perfect incentive alignment of the mentors want to give the best possible advice to the founders for them to succeed because the founder's success is also the mental success. So this is the, one of the core reasons why, why StartMed is just so different to any other accelerator in the world um, and why we have this deep, deep buy-in from all of our mentors. Show me the incentive and I will show you the outcome as the great Charlie Munger has once said. <laughs> so I love that. Let's talk about, I guess, how you've seen those incentives play out. Mm. Different founders are attracted to StartMate for different reasons. And there are different myths around people applying to Startmate. Am I too early? Am I too late? Is my business right for Startmate? Talk about those myths. How have you seen them playing out? Mm. Um, so maybe um, even before I go into those myths, as you say, like how do those um, how do those incentives play out? Is what we call internally the circle of life, where founders go through Startmate, they um, become alumni. They raise money often from our mentors as well. And then two, three years down the line, they've raised another series A, another series B. And the, the most beautiful thing that we see at StartMed is that those founders, alumni, then actually come back themselves as mentors. And that's kind of where the, where the circle then closes, where our alumni become mentors, they invest back into the fund. And then because our founders are successful, they get more money back into the system again. So this is, this is kind of how it plays out. In terms of the myths at StartMed, yeah, we, we get those questions all the time. And the, the two most common ones, which you just mentioned, they are, am I too early and am I too late for StartMate? And what does that even mean? So overall, I always say there is no too early for StartMate. Like you can apply as a solo founder, you can apply pre-product, pre-revenue, pre-MVP. We actually love investing super early on. And we've invested in, in Bellish, which is a great example here, which had a Facebook group of 50,000 followers. And that's about it. They didn't even have a product. And then they raised a couple of rounds and went global with an app for knitters. And it turns out that there's more knitters in the world than there's golfers in the world. On the other side, we've invested in Muso, which was three non-technical founders. They didn't even have a product or an MVP. And then again, like just before them, they even raised a round to take the business global. And on the other question, like, am I too late? We get that the question all the time as well, where founders often and say to us, oh, I've already got those three huge corporate customers. I already have a million dollars in revenue. I've got a team of 10 or 20 people and I don't actually need StartMate. And here again, I would always say that there is no too late. Like you can always get lots and lots of benefit from StartMate. We have invested in businesses which have a million dollars in annual revenue, which have 30 FTE because we match the latest valuation as well of businesses, we have matched valuations of 10 to $20 million. They're definitely the exception, but the most amazing thing about that is that StartMate can still provide so much value to those businesses. What, what is an example of that, that comes to mind? Mm. So um, two examples here probably are um, Work180, um, which had a million dollars in annual revenue, bootstrapped business for three years. And then also the question was like, how, how much more can actually StartMate help me? Like we already have cracked this problem. We already have so many customers and revenue. 
And StartMed, for, for example, for Work 180 was a great springboard for raising a million dollar round. And they literally closed it within 10 weeks even before demo day. So that is definitely one incentive. The other one is um, on the customer side. So 5B is a great example here, which, which makes building solar farms really, really simple and easy. And 5B already had 20 or 30 FT when they went through StartMed. And here, because we have a close association with Michael and Brooks and Grok, and just they actually helped them out. And it was actually exactly that cohort with um, when we had big bushfires in Australia. Mm-hmm. And they were then able to collaborate on those bushfires and to roll out 100 solar farms within 100 days. And so that was a great example of, of actually helping out on the customer front as well. Mm. And then on the early side, talk about UR pre-product like Muso, how do they build the product in that case? How is Startmate helping them? Talk us through that. Hmm. So I guess the first part is it's founders often like to come up with excuses to block themselves. And the biggest blocker for any founder, especially for non-technical founders, is the one of, well, I don't, I'm not a developer. I don't know how to do this. I can't code myself. Like I need a co-founder who's technical. And I always, I always call them out as excuses because your starting point is actually not the product. Your starting point is customers. And if you can focus on customers, get that revenue in, get commitments from customers, you can then off the back of that, on the back of that interest, you can then either bring in great people because they see there's actually something behind that, or you can also raise money to then get a product off the back of that. So maybe in an example of Muso, um, even though you had three non-technical founders, they um, worked well on a complete MVP, just literally a bit of front end, which they can, which you can do yourself of some low code, no code tools. And then in the back end, they were furiously mass- matching people. So maybe just um, for a bit of background, Muso is um, a marketplace for booking musicians. So if you're a bar and you're looking for a musician to play on a Thursday night, you can find them there. So all they had to do, well, in the early stages anyway, is create this facade of this is actually a platform and then they actually could do all the backend themselves. And in the very, very early days, that's completely um, okay. Like you do the things that don't scale. What you're trying to show is that people actually are willing to pay you money and, and that there is actually demand in the market, which is way more important than having a beautiful product in the first place. You mentioned some of the blockers that sort of founders impose on themselves. What else have you seen? I'm just trying to think of um, what other ones, but like the biggest one is always the, the one of, I, I'm not a code, I'm not an engineer, and I can't do this myself. The an example that comes to my mind straight away is the complete inverse situation where all they do is build and they don't speak to customers mm. and they have this bias for building a product without actually knowing whether uh, people actually want it. And they mm. spend all this time, there's this massive sunk cost and they find themselves at the end of Startmate with a product that customers don't want yeah which is yeah which is something that we we drill home for over the 12 weeks which is essential it's just like talk to customers talk to customers rather than the product side um i'll say the other blocker which is kind of what startment helps with is the one of i don't have enough money to actually work on this full time which is exactly why um, we fund our startups with 75k 75k is not a lot of money but it does give you the confidence to work full-time on this company and this product for three to six months to actually like head on tackle this problem to see if there's something really there. I'd probably say that's the other one. The essence of that one is almost centered around Nikki's statement, which is 
the the world is separated by those who just talk about it and those who actually do it and that excuse is a really easy one to go i'll just talk about it until someone else believes in me mm. so that's why um, we always require at least one of the founders to be full-time on the business because if you don't believe in the business yourself nobody else will also let's talk about a couple of case studies that you've worked through you've now been at Startmate. is it you there three years now almost three years yeah wow Holy moly. One of the big things that I remember talking to you about in a cafe in Melbourne was around founder breakups. And you've seen a few in your time. Why do founder breakups happen in Startmate, first of all? And then second of all, how should founders be thinking about or navigating that circumstance? Hmm. Yeah. So why do founder breakups happen and how do they deal with them? Like the first part is how do you, why did it happen? Founder breakups, they have this negative connotation to them where um, everybody always sees them as a bad thing. In Startmate, it's, it's almost good if a founder breakups hap happens during Startmate. And the reason why it's good is because you actually have a supportive community around you who can help you go through the breakup in a, in a good or better way than you usually would, which is on the other side also, what's good about the co-founder breakup is it's always better for it to happen earlier than later because the later down the line you are in building a company, the more messy it gets. And why do they actually happen? Often is, um, often what happens is that co-founders don't have a conversation ahead of time before even starting the company of what they want to get out of it. How long are you willing to work for the company? Like what are your non-negotiables? Like, especially with spending time with um, family, and with going international with what are your responsibilities as a co-founder as well? Like how do you split them? There's often an overlap or there's often an imbalance in responsibilities as well. And just being really upfront about them. They're the most common reasons of co-founder breakups to happen. And how do you actually go about co-founder breakups? I mean, hardly any co-founder breakup is any, like nobody walks out of a co-founder breakups like, yeah, this was amazing. <laughs> So they're always hard and there's no lying there. And the best thing you can do is actually get a mediator, somebody outside who has ideally no vested interest um, in either side of you and who you both trust to just help you navigate. Because covenant breakups are just inherently very emotionally loaded conversations because you both have worked on the business or, or three or four of you have worked on this business for a couple of years and it's like letting go a child or a baby and both of you want an arm and a leg and somebody else to help you navigate that is actually really important the most important thing for the mediator themselves because i've been in this position a couple of times now is just completely always always optimize on the founder's mental health and the reason why i say that is well the people in the business are absolutely the most important thing in the business itself. And on the other side, if you don't have founders, you don't even have a business in the, in the first place. So that goes for both founders to one founder who's leaving and the one founder who's going to take the business on board. So, yeah. So, and how do you do that? Well, um, ideally a mediator can actually have a good conversation with both parties, understand what they want to um, get out of it. And what, what I mean by what did they want? Want to get out of it and very much like who is who even wants to take this business forward if you don't want to take this business forward like what would be a non-negotiable for yourself like how much money or equity do you want to get out of it why what is the balance between cash and equity as well 
And then the last part, then once you've optimized for the founders is optimized for the business as well, where, well, if one of the founders walks away with 50% of the company, that business is unfundable in the future and will never be successful. So there's almost no point for, for the other founder to continue. So you need to actually um, manage that well as well of like, what is a reasonable, reasonable piece to take away when the founder leaves as well. So one of the massive value adds along with helping startups through their journey is setting them up to raise money. How have you seen companies best set themselves up for success? Mm. I would almost rephrase that question a little bit because um, StartMate isn't necessarily for setting um, companies up for raising money. And that's probably a bit of a misconception as well of, of, ex- of StartMate at least because we don't want to be that accelerator, which is just about fundraising. What we always say we care about in the team week one, we tell every startup as well is when they set themselves goals, it's all about happy customers. And that's 100% what we focus on, what we emphasize. And why is that? Because firstly, if you have happy customers, ideally you also have lots of revenue and you don't even need to fundraise in the first place. I mean, that's an ideal world. It doesn't often happen and it doesn't always happen. But if you have happy customers, Fundraising is always just a secondary thing. If you have happy customers, fundraising becomes much, much easier and almost just follows along. And so fundraising by itself is actually not, shouldn't even be a goal. It should always be about serving your customers and solving a problem. And once you've validated that and shown that fundraising just becomes just another thing you do. If you, if that is even the right path for yourself. So what have I seen companies um, do with the fundraising? Well, um, Firstly, you definitely need to validate that you, there is a problem in the world that people want to pay for and people are what we call flocking to your product and to your solution. And that is the most important part. The second thing you, you um, I have seen startups do really well is then essentially um, build those relationships with founders, well, uh, with investors well ahead of time. So rather than just going into a meeting and expecting a million dollar check straight off a 30 minute conversation, you want to be building those invested relationships. Ideally over six to 12 months, you want to keep sending people a monthly update and showing you how you're going. It's a concept which we call um, lines, not dots. So every time you talk to somebody, you create one dot on your timeline and one data point for an investor or somebody who has a conversation with yourself. What investors look for are multiple dots which they can connect with a line. And the reason for that is because people want to understand your growth journey. Because if you take it all the way back to what are startups, startups are essentially very fast growing businesses. And the only thing that sets a startup apart to any other business in the world is you can grow incredibly fast, faster than any other more traditional business. So what investors look for are those lines and those very steep lines. And so that's what the best funders do for the fundraising. They have those conversations to build those relationships. They can show the trajectory. And then the third piece of the puzzle is then once you are ready for fundraising, either, either you already have a strong believer who will just write your check even without you really going into fundraising because people that you will ask you, can I put money into your business? Or once you're ready for investment, you then try to run a very streamlined short process where you're trying to get all the investor conversations in a very short time period, ideally in the same week. And you build that kind of almost competitive tension around it and you distort 
um, the timelines around what you want to get out of it rather than playing on investor timelines. You spend a lot of time with founders, both good and bad. What do the founders do that give you energy? What do the good ones look like? Mm. They do three things. <laughs> the first thing is they, they focus 100% on customers and that's the most important thing. They literally just talk to customers, they get their energy from customers and they just 100% focus the company and what they're trying to achieve and the time is also spent on those conversations. The second thing they do is um, they ask for feedback. And what I mean by that is feedback from customers, but also feedback from mentors, from people who've been there, from investors. And the best founders then are also able to sort for the feedback in a good way. So like you're not trying to take all the feedback on board. You're also not trying to reject all the feedback, but you take the feedback on board uh, and combine it with everything you've to, um, heard from customers. And the third thing they, uh, the founders do really well which I get energy from is it's just because it communicate well. And it is, I think, understated how communication, how important communication is. Regular communication, which is, for example, monthly updates um, and sending it out religiously with a good update of where you're at and what you need help with. Asking for help is actually a really important part of that as well. But then also just bringing people along the journey with yourself. So there, that's a, that's a really important part there. Let's inverse it. What are the... What, what takes away your energy? What are, the, what are they, what do they look like? Um, I guess the inverse of all of your answers. Yeah. It literally <laughs> the bad storytellers that don't talk to, they yeah. don't talk to customers. <laughs> but that's exactly it. It's like whenever people are just like head down on the product, don't even talk to customers, don't even want to talk to customers, reluctant to jump on the phone to talk to anybody. On the other side, you need to chase them for things. They never reply to you they take 15 days to reply to an email kind of thing. And it's like, people want to help you just be helpable. <laughs> what do you think the impact of COVID has had in Startmate this year? How have you guys adapted? Mm. So Startmate is an organization. It made a lot of our things, which we do much, much easier. So if you think about an accelerator, or if you think about Startmate, because we're not just an accelerator, what it is is a community of people who want to help each other. And what the COVID allowed us to do is to completely transition our accelerator from an in-person cohort to now running it completely virtually. So the last cohort, we had 16 companies and they were all over Australia, New Zealand, from Wellington, Auckland, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, and Adelaide. And the other thing that it allowed us to do is get mentors from everywhere and anywhere. So now we also have Kiwi mentors and Aussie mentors actually learning from each other, helping companies out anywhere in the two countries. And lastly, every mentor always has time for a session if you hit them up because everybody can jump on a Zoom call for an hour to talk to the core, to talk to the founders. So you now have a way high accessibility to awesome people at any time anywhere. What are some of the drawbacks of COVID for, for Startmate? I mean, as you can imagine, the virtual element of, of an accelerator, there is the mo one of the most important things of running a cohort such as at Startmate is actually that in-person effect of you have founders working side by side, having a lunch or dinner together and helping each other out and creating that human element um, of the bonding effect is way harder. And there are a couple of things we, which we've done to 
um, to, tr to do that well. And we're still learning ourselves, but that is definitely way harder than it was in an in-person element. Let's switch gears to the second pillar that Startmate is known for, the fellowship. Talk about it at a high level. What is it? Yeah, so as I mentioned, the three pillars of Startmate, founders, operators, and investors. This is kind of our operator pillar where once a startup has customers and has raised money, what they want to spend the money on usually is awesome people and hiring becomes more competitive and really hard. And the whole idea of um, the fellowship is essentially one of rather than um, just hiring from other startups and getting a product manager who works at you, essentially your neighbors, let's actually challenge the whole industry to think about hiring from different places. And the idea of the fellowship is to bring those people from the corporate world um, into startups because so many um, lawyers, consultants are unhappy what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. And every single person probably had the thought of, well, I should do a startup. But most people just kind of stop there because it's just a, a just an idea. They don't know what the next steps are. It is a, um, it is essentially the uncertainty which holds you back of, I don't know, if I can get a paycheck, I don't even know what a startup is. It's just one person working from a garage. So what the fellowship is, is a nine week program to give you that confidence to jump into a startup and to actually join a startup and see what it's like. Um, so the fellowship itself is now cohorts of 100 women. Um, Cause we also want to change the whole diversity lens in the tech ecosystem as well. So by the end of next year, we'll place 300 women in startup jobs around Australia to actually make a real difference in the gender parity in Australian, in the Australian tech ecosystem, essentially. It's amazing. And I mean, we've said internally, it's one of the best things to happen to startups, at least this year, but let's focus on what the best operators do. What are their traits? Why and who will be best suited to startups? Hmm. So overall, I always say, Hire for attitude, not skill. So lots of people emphasize what hard skills you need to have. Ideally, you've already done X and Y and Z and you've got 15 years of experience in, in this particular area. But what's way more important is actually attitude where people are passionate about the problem you're solving, about the customer you're serving, about learning and actually self-learners and curious people is probably two of the biggest traits which great operators have and people who want to push themselves out of their boundaries rather than just be told what to do. I know your favorite book is by Seth Godin, Lynchpins. Mm. Why is it your favorite book? And, and have you seen some of those traits in any of the fellows in the most recent cohort? Yeah, no, absolutely. So Lynchpin by Seth Godin, yeah, a great book. Absolutely love it. It puts into words all my thoughts when, when I think about operating. Um, I which guess, says a lot <laughs> <laughs> it actually yeah it just does an incredible job at verbalizing it but uh, the, the core concept of it is rather than just being told what to do and just always doing an average job linchpins are the people who just go over and beyond of delivering like every small task they do they always do it not necessarily to perfection but they actually think about first principles of how can this be better and improve on that and I guess maybe one actionable um, insight 
for everybody who's listening is what we often think about is ourselves and how, what is my job and what can I do? But linchpins um, or the best operators actually are able to see the high level and see the organizational priorities and actually work on them and understand how it fits into there. So one of the mindsets which they put themselves in is what are my boss's problems or what are my boss's boss's problems and actually help to solve them and work on them rather and actually understand how everything you do fits into the larger picture. I mean, flesh that out a little more. Have you, do you have an example that comes to mind where you perform that yourself in Startmate? Um, so maybe not necessarily myself at Startmate, but maybe um, not necessarily even a tangible example, but when I was at Expert 60, um, which was um, the startup which I was at just before Startmate, so roughly three, four years ago now, I was hired as a business analyst and operations manager. And at the time we were 10 people, we scaled it to 60 people. And my job was kind of the one of um, jack of all trades. Honestly, like I had a job description which was roughly valid for two months because I, um, the company changed so quickly. And, and I just tried to take on, I just tried to learn everything because I loved kind of the problem which we're solving. I loved getting my fingers into all different directions. So even though my initial job description was let's do business analysis to highlight some customer insights, I then was kind of like doing the vortex on the side, trying to land Salesforce and our CRM on another, on another death and monitor and holding our CRM together. Then actually, I remember the head of marketing going on holidays and he was called Michael. He, his name was Michael. And then Bridget, the CEO went around um, um, <laughs> went around the, the space. It was like, Michael, Michael, all of our my, uh, marketing emails are out of whack. And I was just like, well, Michael's on holidays. And obviously my name is Michael too. So she's like, oh, well, can you do it? <laughs> um, <laughs> and that was kind of the start of, well, okay, Michael went on holidays yesterday. He's gone for a week. So I had to jump in and learn the marketing software and kind of fix all those different flows and just do it. And it was, I loved it because it actually accelerated my own learning. It helped the company achieve its goals as well, even though it was not part of my job description. It was, it propelled the business forward and it actually was a great opportunity for myself to learn as well. So you mentioned the other side of this equation, which is the sponsors, the startups looking for operators and fellows. How are they involved in the fellowship? So the fellowship now is, is a force of itself. We get 600 applications where we involve all of our startups and our sponsors as well to help us filter into the cohort of 100 people, which is roughly the top, top 16% of operators. And now we have 100 women who are incredible and have the desire to jump into startups. So what happens now is that we have limited and 10 spots for sponsors to actually sponsor the fellowship itself. And what do our sponsors get out of sponsoring? I mean, two things. The first thing is they are the, they've got front row seats to hire those fellows, which is incredible in itself because I mean, the, this fellowship cohort itself is in week eight out of nine. So it finishes next week and already 25 out of the hundred fellows are in startup jobs because they found wow. them already. That's amazing. <laughs> so yeah, so you can imagine actually being a sponsor is a great value proposition because you um, sponsor the fellowship and you're literally there from day one and you see the uh, fellows operate and you can actually hire and make offers um, as you go. So that's one value proposition. The second one is the one of you 
Um, also are sponsoring free women from so low socioeconomic backgrounds to be part of the fellowship without them having to pay the participation fee because there is a participation fee of a thousand dollars and and essentially with your sponsorship fee what you're doing is supporting free women who otherwise wouldn't have been able to afford it talking about it the other day introductions are a really tough thing to get right you're using social capital can you talk about the best way that either Startmate facilitates those introductions or how mentors or coaches should be should be introducing different people let's see your thoughts on that so with introductions i actually often feel like 50 percent of my job is literally just introducing people to each other and we actually the first thing that we do in the accelerator and the fellowship is teach teach people how to ask for help but then also how to do and ask for a good introduction and i guess that the first principle of a two principles of a good introductions are number one, do the work yourself and make it really, and two is make it really easy for the other person to introduce you. What I mean by that is one, do the work yourself is not about asking, Hey, who knows the best um, Facebook marketing person, but actually going out there and researching, Hey, those are three interesting people who I want to connect with. And I know you're connected with them because of X, Y, and Z and almost make the connection for them and ask for specific introductions. Always include a LinkedIn link as well and ask people, are you willing to do this introduction? And then the second part is make it really easy for somebody to make that introduction. Once somebody says, yeah, sure, no problem at all. You actually want to have an email ready, which firstly sets the context. Why do you want this introduction? And secondly, has a paragraph about yourself and your company um, or yourself as a fellow of like, this is me and this is why it's relevant. And then you forward an email to, for example, myself, who's gonna provide the introduction. And I can, all I have to do is literally on my phone, hit forward and be like, hey, do you wanna to chat to this person? So firstly, do the research and secondly, make it super easy for people to introduce themselves. And if you can do that well, um, then coming back to the concept of social capital. So rather than me actually spending my social capital with the person I'm introducing you to, because you've done your research and it's super relevant to them, I'm actually increasing my social capital because you actually are providing value to that other person. And that other person is gonna even more likely take another introduction from me in the future because they know I actually provided a great introduction. Mm -hmm. Do you have an example that comes to mind, which is like, do the research up front? I know that some fellows have a challenge of like doing the research on what is actually adding value to this person that I've never met and how do we set an agenda? Yeah, so it's not about just asking random people to meet for you with coffee, but really doing your research of, <laughs> I want to, my assumption is I want to go into this industry and this is why I have this assumption. And this is what I, what I, what I want to ask this person about to validate my assumption. And how do you provide value as, let's say, an operator or a fellow um, to that person? Because often our fellows then feel a little, um, like imposters. We're like, oh, I can't add any value to this conversation. Um, Firstly, people love talking about themselves, as I, you can tell be, me being on this podcast <laughs> um, and any other of your podcast guests. <laughs> uh, but secondly, like people love good questions. That's the other one. Like if somebody's done their research in, in you and they ask you really specific hard questions and uh, questions which they never might have gotten before, going really deep into the area of expertise, People absolutely love that. And especially if you can challenge the thinking and 
I mean, the reason why somebody does a company is because they're so deeply passionate about it. So they also love talking about it. So yeah. Good questions lead to good answers. Let's move on to investors. And I mean, we're 10 years in. Let's just start off by how's it even going? Mm. Um, so yeah, all of this is not financial advice and um, not specific. Noted. <laughs> um, <laughs> but starting, yeah, so we've been around for 10 years. We've invested now in over 130 companies. We invest at the latest valuation or at a $1 million valuation. And um, now we have a fund size, which is large enough for us to also take our proratos um, off the back of it. But at a high level, our companies are now, uh, or our, um, our companies now are worth over a billion dollars. Um, right. And Startmint itself is, you could actually call us maybe a micro fund or micro seed fund where our funds under management, roughly $10 million for the last 10 years. And mm. that $10 million now has a TVPI of 2.92x, which means essentially the paper value of that $10 million is roughly um, $29 million. Interestingly, maybe is because you can't spend paper returns because all of those companies are still private. Um, but actually two of the things which happened this year have been actually quite unusual and interesting, which one is one of our companies actually paid out a dividend, which is very unusual for a startup. And that returned an open 4X of that fund, as well as we sold down 22% of our shares in a company, which in a secondary round. So it means when there's more interest from investors than the company is willing to sell, initial investors have the possibility to sell in something that's called a secondary round. And that round itself on 22% of our shares in that company actually returned 1.2 X of that fund as well. It's incredible. Um, yeah. But overall, I mean, we've got now four or five businesses which are um, worth over hundred million dollars with over hundred staff each. And I mean, wow. think about it from a lens of four years ago, there were one person trying to solve a problem. I mean, it's, it's remarkable when you look at it like that. And I mean, over the next 10 years, you talk about increasing the number of companies that Startmate is investing in. Is there a normal failure rate at such an early stage that you typically, I guess, expect? Oh, absolutely. So what we see in our financial returns as well, and that goes for every single cohort is um, that out of, let's say on average 10 companies, which we invest in every cohort in the first two years, Roughly four out of 10 companies implode, explode, and um, co-founder breakups, and people just realized they weren't solving a, a large enough problem. And um, that kind of goes back into the concept, which I was talking about earlier, the, the circle of life, because the beautiful thing that happens in Startmate is those founders often get hired by their own cohort and actually get recycled mm. back into our startups, which is pretty amazing to see. Um, but um, then after two or three years, you kind of hit that point where those companies, after raising a seed round off the back of Demo Day, they actually are ready to raise another round, which is usually a Series A, Series B. And then our financial returns increase with that as well. So mm. um, Startmate definitely has the classic venture returns where one, two, three of the businesses of every cohort do incredibly well. But the other ones from a financial perspective, at least, um, don't um, provide the money back. So let's, let's talk about the people who are giving you their money. What do they, how do they tend to behave? What does a good mentor look like? How do they get the most from the startups that they're not only investing in, but they're also trying to help support as they go through Starmate? 
Mm. Yeah. So kind of like the, the worst and the best mentors. And it's, it's kind of always the same trend here where the worst mentors are the ones who, who tell you what to do. They're like, Hey, I've seen this five times before, and this is exactly the way you need to do that because X and Y and Z is going to lead to failure. And lots of people want that. <laughs> lots of people are like, I just want somebody to tell me what to do. But the best founders, they not even the best founders, but like founders inherently in a space which they're innovating. So, which means nobody else has ever done what they're doing before ahead of them. So nobody else can tell you that this is going to work or not. What the best mentors do though, is rather than telling you what to do, they ask really good questions because they've seen those things before. They can ask you the right questions to trigger thoughts and processes for you to then validate with your customers. Mm. Um, yeah. So great mentors as, ask great thought provoking questions. It's almost baked into that. The assumption that they don't know anything and this time it could be different and start mates all about the exceptions and being open-minded to those exceptions, working it out with them, with the context that they have seen this a few times before. Yeah, absolutely. So let's dive into some of the lessons that we're kind of talking about here. What have we seen in Startmate? What have you extracted from selecting some of the companies? Hmm. I guess there's two things in here which kind of feed into each other. The first one is just always back people and big problems. Um, often you come across a shiny solution and a really well-polished founder and a great storyteller and everything almost seems to be too good to be true. But it's actually almost the raw, passionate founder who has a huge ambition and acknowledges that they don't know um, anything but they are sitting on a huge problem and they really want to solve it for themselves. Often that's the people you want to be backing. That's definitely a big lesson. And which kind of goes hand in hand with the second thing, which is the concept which we call it start bed of just the hung back the hungry, not the proven of it's way more important to not important, but like it's, you want to be backing the person who has a chip on the shoulder, who wants to prove something to the world who has that huge desire to just change something, the unloved and um, somebody who has been ignored for a long time and actually just giving them an opportunity and believing them rather than the proven, which is the person who's already had, let's say five businesses is an executive at a corporate um, is a wealthy consultant, etc. Like you actually want to believe in people super early on and give them an opportunity rather than investing in the people who already have proven lots of things. What's an example of a company that comes to mind that had the world sort of stacked against them and were just so hungry that they're able to push through those either visible or self-imposed barriers and perhaps push through and got the best out of start, mate. Yeah. And um, I guess one good example, and this is again, like in hindsight, where is Casey Ellis from Buckcrowd? He is an alumni from 2012. And I mean, this is eight years ago now where Buckrod is essentially, let's call it a marketplace for hackers, where if you're a company and you want um, to, somebody to test your security, you can release a hundred hackers onto it and to hunt for bounties, which you get. And the reason why I'm um, covering Casey is because 
back in the day, I mean, this is eight years ago, hackers were definitely not, not core members of the society, frowned upon the unloved, the people in the dark rooms with the hoodies who, who hack websites kind of thing. Whereas now, obviously, they changed it a bit because cybersecurity is so important and actually those people and having them is so important. But back then, actually believing in somebody like that was a very big difference where not a lot of people wanted to believe in in hackers and the good in people. And actually backing somebody like that is awesome. And the background now is over a $100 million company across Australia and and in the US and global customers, et cetera. One of the areas that I want to dive into here is if they're sitting on a problem, right? And we talk about sort of pre-seed, like super early stage, there's nothing too early for Blackbird or for Startmate. But talk about, I guess, the clarity of thought when they come to Startmate for either office hours or for the application process. I mean, they might have a really, they've earned this insight. They've come to it via either personal experiences or something akin to it. How clear should they be on the solution? Yeah. So great question. I mean, on the solution itself, the solution actually does not matter as such. Like what I, we love founders to be clear on and I love founders to be clear on is the problem itself, but actually uh, even a layer deeper, like they have a unique insight into the customers and the way they behave and the problems they have that nobody else has. And that is such a core insight that it's really hard to replicate or you need to have X years of experience in that industry or you've experienced it yourself. And that's actually really important rather than having a really clear um, idea of the solution itself, because the problem will actually not change, but the solution will change a hundred times over the next 10 years because you will go for pivots. You will learn new things and you will want to cater for different customers, etc. And whereas the problem itself and that insight into your customers, that's, that's the one where we want people to have a really clear idea and clarity of thought on. Mm. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time, Baco. That was so awesome. And I'm sure plenty of founders will be applying before the 24th of November for the next cohort. Thanks for having me. Now it's time to listen to Lane from Chatterize is brave enough to share what it was like handling the hard truths of Starmate. At the beginning of Starmate, she set the goal of going from nearly nothing to acquiring 10,000 users. She unhatched and ended up acquiring 18,000 users, which was a remarkable achievement, and she shares part of her journey to get there. I would love to understand what the biggest challenge you went through during Starmate was, and how did you navigate through all of the chaos? Well, we definitely had a few challenges during the Startmate program. We came into Startmate pre-product and we set a user goal for ourselves of 10,000 users by 10, the end of the program. 10,000 users. Ten, just a small, <laughs> small number, 10,000 users by the end of the program. So not only did we have to build the product, we had to release it and successfully market it so that we could grow it to 10,000 users. So yeah, that... You know, it That's was a, a big, it was a big hairy goal. <laughs> it was, it was a big hairy goal. It was a big hairy goal and failure at Startmate is quite public, mm. right? And I think no one 
feels particularly good about massive public failure. Uh, so that was definitely a challenge, but I think that my biggest challenges uh, at Startmate and in business, I can always come back to my own personal issues. Wow. I find this true 90% of the time that I can look at the challenges and the struggles that my business faces and really relate to them, them back to my own personal issues. So as a very good example, Dean McAvoy. Dean McAvoy, who is amazing. <laughs> Shout out totally... Dean. <laughs> hey Dean. Hey Dean. Dean McAvoy, who's totally amazing, you know, got me for a, a 30 minute or 15 minute session. And the moment that I walked into the room, do you know what he did, Mason? I'm not sure. He didn't listen to me talk. He didn't listen to any of my BS. And instead, what he did is he said, show me your product. And I was like, oh, no. And then I started to explain the Chinese on each screen. But instead, he took out his phone and auto-translated everything. So I sat in a corner and watched him play. And he asked me, is it broken? Is it, is it broken? And I just slowly died inside. It was 15 minutes of just cringing in the corner and it's just slowly oh, dying. No. So painful. <gasps> you know, and oh. he's so nice. He looked at me and I was trying so hard to just to give off this air of like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, thank you for your feedback. But I mean, I was not achieving that. Right. He looked at me and he kind of took a breath and stopped for a moment. But I went home that night. I went home that night and I thought about why was that so difficult for me, right? Why was it so difficult for me? It's because that's my product, right? I haven't disassociated myself with my product. And I am right now unable to listen to direct feedback because I'm so attached to that product, right? And I, I had to take that moment to get over it because what you don't want to know is going to kill you. What you don't want to know will kill your company so, so fast. The, the truth is the things that you don't want to know. Mm. And that's why and you should know them. You have to run to the pain. You got to run into the chaos. Oh, the, the moments you feel inadequate, the moments you, I am not, I, I am a, <laughs> I'm a, non-technical founder of a very technical company mm. most of the things i do every day i have no idea how to do <laughs> this is the absolute truth right mm. you feel inadequate you feel unprepared right you're, you're used to maybe having people underneath you and now you do it all yourself it's your baby it's your product everything you don't want to know everything you feel you don't feel enough confidence about those are the things that get you and over time, have you been able to dis disassociate your product to your identity? Has it become any easier? <laughs> no, it hasn't particularly become any easier necessarily, but I've just decided that it doesn't have to be easy, right? That mm. The idea and the concept of running towards that pain, right? Of the things that are the most painful are the things you probably need to do. Mm. You know, the things that are the most important for your company after embracing that, Maybe, maybe it becomes a little less painful over time. You know, I haven't achieved that level of kind of like nirvana yet. You're still but a savage line. <laughs> <laughs> it's, still, it's still slightly painful. It's still slightly painful, but I do it anyway now. I love it. And can you describe what it was like 
even at a customer level, that relationship? What did you do to test it with your product with your users? Because oh, Dean McAvoy isn't yeah. isn't your target customer. <laughs> no, no, no. Dean McAvoy is slightly different than yeah. a four to twelve year old Chinese kid. Yes, I agree. I agree. No, you're absolutely right. So in the beginning, what we did is we're used to working with big levels of data, big amounts of data, right? So we've tested on some users, but we really focused on looking at the data and the performance through big data and data analysis, which was a mistake. It was absolutely a mistake. We had usability issues we could have solved weeks earlier. And I mean, when you have a 10,000 user goal that you need to achieve in a month and a half, you, you can all lose weeks. Mm. It's unacceptable, right? So we could have solved our usability issues weeks earlier if I had had the courage to be able to listen to people's negative feedback. And what happened after those few weeks? I mean, was, oh. was there a perspective shift? Was there a, a catalyst that drove you to that reality? There's nothing worse than getting caught by Dean McAvoy for a full 15 or 30 minutes, <laughs> right? After that happens to you, you don't want it to happen again. I would much rather have a parent tell me that their kid doesn't know how to use our microphone or navigate mm -hmm. through our product or has issues uh, with pass, pass and fail right? Then have a prospective investor or someone that I respect and trust have to tell me these things. It's not their job. Mm. That's my and, job. And Lane, what would your advice be for someone who's building a product during Startmate? My advice for anybody, whether they're building a product or not during Startmate is it's an accelerator. You have to accelerate, mm. right? You have to be brave. If you don't have a product, you need to be even braver. Because it's not enough to get out of start made and say, ah, we're going to do a few user interviews and finish our product. That, that's not enough. That's what start, what start made is for. You have access to these are the best mentors in the world. You can ask any question to, you can find anyone to answer any single question. They give you money. <laughs> you need to accelerate. So be brave. Be brave. Set a really high, very tough go goal and kill it. Elaine, thank you so much for your time uh, and sharing that wisdom. I'm sure someone's going to hear it and, and really ignite. Yeah, no, absolutely. Hey, big, big shout out to Dean. Thanks, Dean, for the life lesson. He might not know it, but that was a big one for me. And last but not least, it's time to listen to Saren, a co-founder and COO of Bioscout. Instead of taking months to integrate with farms, Bioscout can now incredibly be launched in minutes. Here she shares her most valuable takeaways from Startmate. It wasn't always this way, and we'll discover with Saren as she shares their biggest challenge in Startmate. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, Thanks for having me on the show. Very excited to be here. In, in the spirit of Startmate and always finding the truth, what was the biggest challenge that you went through during Startmate? And run us through how you sort of navigated it. I think... Scout before coming into Startmate was in a really interesting position. We had just pivoted our sensor design from kind of a drone-based system to a stationary one. Uh, we'd also pivoted market. So we were pretty much coming in from ground zero, no, wow. not having really tested a lot of a lot of you know anything that we were really doing. We hadn't tested the new sensors in the field yet. We'd just gotten our first bit of revenue from an agronomist or sort of a customer. Um, who really was like a rare early adopter, but that was really exciting for us. And so we kind of thought that was great because 
we thought that was enough customer wise. Mm. I think, I think we sort of felt like, you know, we had proved that we had built something that people want to buy and that's what we need to do customer wise. Uh, we've got this new product. And so we need to really focus on that. I think Startmate really challenged that for us as sort of a team of engineers who are so product led and so product centric. I think from the get-go, the goal-setting process at the start of the program really pushed us from having mm. these huge product-centric goals to goals that actually focused on the market and customers. I think our first kind of goal that we had set was having, you know, signing on one to two customers by the end of the program because, you know, we already had our first customer coming in. Yeah. And I remember back home saying, you know, why is it not 10, 20, 50 customers? <laughs> um, <laughs> I can imagine that as well. Yeah, definitely. Like him just saying, you know, how can you 10x that? Yeah, yeah. A huge kind of, yeah, a really big challenge like straight from the get-go. So I think that really pushed us to kind of go from, thinking that what we had was enough and that we really needed to just focus on the product to actually saying, oh no, we actually need to get more than just the one or two customers who are willing to part with their own money and actually get some people who really feel like this, this technology and what we're actually building is actually going to have value for them. So I guess in, in a nutshell, the biggest challenge for us was getting comfortable with putting the code down, getting comfortable with the hardware design, product design, and actually talking to customers actually executing on trials and I think as well getting the revenue for that which mm. was really uncomfortable for us because you know we did have this really early stage new technology that we knew had worked from trials that we had done before but actually getting someone to pay you to do that pay up yeah there's exactly yeah <laughs> and it, exactly like pay up and and it's such a different thing building a product you know you know, we had obviously learned that talking to customers is really important because you want to make sure that you're building a product that somebody wants. But there's a big difference between somebody who tells you that they want to build something or if they want a particular product and what it is they're willing to part with their money for. And so that was that key sort of change that Startmate kind of made us realize that it was like actually also about getting that revenue and getting that, that early commitment from them. And I think that's a really hard thing for engineers to do, mm. you know, being a, you know, four co-founders, all of us engineers, we just, we're really comfortable sitting behind a computer screen, writing code or creating new product designs. That's like our kind of, yeah, like just, just comfort zone. So Starmate pushed us to kind of go from, you know, needing to have a product that was perfect and was ready to sit out in the field to actually saying where it's at right now, you know, you've tested it, you've, you know, you've got an early understanding of how it works, go out and sell it. And I, yeah, distinctly remember conversations with Batco and Alfred, who was our partner saying, you know, okay, so how many customers have you spoken to this week? And it's like, you know, five, five of them, you know, what's your conversion rate? Oh, I think like, you know, one of the, one or two of them are keen to potentially pay for it. It's like, that's not enough. Sarah. And like, we, we laugh about it now, but yeah, at the time it was like, oh God, like how, you know, why it's, it's just, yeah, I think that idea of like needing it to be perfect and, and needing to ship a product that is like at the stage that it needs to be or at the stage that it is in our minds. Yeah. It's not me just like shattered that assumption, which was really awesome. And, and it kind of took us from, yeah, having that one or two early adopter customer to having, you know, a pipeline of 30 plus farmers who are really wow. keen on, on getting our technology in their hands. I think we had mm. probably about three paid trials going like midway through the program. And we had just learned so much from actually executing on those trials and getting out in the field as opposed to 
tinkering away in the lab, building what we thought the customers had actually wanted, but actually learning from, from first-hand experience. So yeah, I'd probably say from, yeah, in a nutshell or like on a high level, just getting comfortable with, with putting the product out as it is and, and learning from that process. Can you run us through an example or a, or a story with one of your first customers? Yeah, definitely. I guess like, yeah, the first customer who basically said that they would pay for this technology was the person who really convinced us to take our system from a drone-based device to having it sit stationary in the field, which was huge for us because mm. we have, you know, prior to joining Startmate, we had done as, you know, all of our advisors had told us and spoken to customers and customers were telling us that they wanted a drone system but once again, nobody had actually paid us for this drone system. But this first customer, this agronomist, had specifically asked us to move this from being a drone-based system to a stationary kind of field sensor. Um, we That's did a huge sort of change. Massive change. Far out. Like for, for a hardware company who has been building for, you know, over a year, you know, this, this drone-based system, like the, the complex sort of electromechanical nature of the system you know there, there was a lot that needed to be changed but mm. this person really saw something in the technology and the value that we were potentially going to offer to farmers and i think he yeah like i said like classic kind of example of, of an early adopter so we did that and it was really funny because i think he expected us to roll onto farm about a year or so later which is what like most farmers are sort of used to you know talking to a lot of ag tech companies it's like okay mm. well they're saying they're going to build this but we doubt that we'll actually see them there but that was the point that we had joined Startmate. And with the push from Startmate, we went from thinking that we would be on farm in six months to actually being on farm within the month. And so I think it was actually, yeah, two months after we'd had that initial conversation, we flew up to the farm in our final Queensland and yeah, learned so much from this installation process, thinking that it was, you know, super simple and, you know, we roll on farm, put this thing up and, you know, our day's done that was not true at all uh, like the like really strict sort of yeah biosecurity measures that a lot of farms have to kind of prevent you know the the occurrence of exotic pests and diseases meant that like something as simple as insulation actually had so many more steps to it than we had ever imagined mm. you know everything from vehicle washing to like shoe washing to shoe changing to cars that you're allowed to use on the farm like things that you just you know in a lab in sydney like you know hundreds of kilometers away you would just never think of so with a projected insulation time of three hours it actually took us an entire day to do three devices mm. so yeah that was that was kind of a really yeah i guess like earth shattering experience and it made us realize how important it was to just like stop focusing so much on trying to learn all the things in the lab and actually just get out to as many farms as possible, install as many devices as you can, learn that process, get that, get that experience. And yeah, like fast forward to, to yesterday being on a mm. farm in, in Orange, New South Wales, it I think took about 15 minutes per device to, to put these units up, which That's was amazing. You know, a huge change from, from where we were about, yeah, a year ago. Yeah. And, and we're still going strong with that, that customer as well. So yeah, really, really important early learnings that have just translated so well to, to now. Do you have any advice for hardware startups at the stage you were at when you first started at Startmate? Yeah, definitely. 
based on, yeah, what I've just sort of been saying, and I'm sure a lot of these hardware startups have heard this, but get out and talk to customers. Make sure you're building a product that people actually want to pay for, that people actually have a burning problem and need for, and not just something that people are, are telling you that they want, because there's a huge difference between what someone's telling you that they want and something that they're actually willing to pay for. And it's really uncomfortable. So, so get yourself out of the comfort zone, put down the code, put down the CAD model, put down the 3D printing materials, <laughs> like <laughs> make that list of, yeah. of your potential customers and just hit it every single day. You know, I think the rule is 10 before 10, 10 customers before 10 a.m. Like do that every single day and you will learn so much more than if you just kind of sit within your comfort zone of playing with products and do that as, as early and as quickly as possible to save yourself that time. Because if we had that year back where we were building essentially a drone company, there, there's so much that we could have done in mm. that time. But yeah, really important lessons then. But I, I hope that, yeah, all, all sort of hardware founders or hardware startups need to kind of do that as early as possible. Thank you so much, Darren, for joining us at Wild Hearts. Thanks so much, Mason. Thank you so much for joining us. If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love for you to send us an email. Wildhearts at blackbird.vc. I hope you'll subscribe. And if you like the podcast, we'd be super grateful if you left us a review. Thank you so much for joining me and I'll see you in a fortnight.